it is now recording. Brilliant. So you you're warmed up now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to It Just So Happened. <laughs> I am Richard Paulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 6th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? It's where Sir Sean Connery worked on a milk round, where Harry Potter was conceived, and a place renowned for its smell, once known as Old Reeky. Yes, it's Edinburgh! <laughs> We're performing the show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world. And our venue this afternoon is the space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library and archive. Designed by William Henry Playfair and completed in 1832, it's one of the many Category A-listed buildings in the city. During the Fringe, the space venue hosts four performance spaces and about 100 different shows. And we have an audience in the museum with us today, as the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year, so we welcome about one one-hundred-thousandth of that number to this show. And what's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. Please welcome Sharalampos Kundarakis. Yes, close enough. Yes, who I shall now uh, call Babis for the rest of the show, because that's much easier. I believe that Babis is an improv actor originally from Greece, and this Fringe will be taking part in an improv show. So would you briefly like to tell us about yourself and the show? Sure. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Babis. I have been doing improv for quite a while. During this Fringe, I will be taking part in Bruhahaha, which is a improv show that you can find in Brewdog. And... Ooh, I'm changing the order again. No, I'm not. It's, it is David Second. <laughs> yes, good. Uh, David Crookshanks is a comedian from Fife. He's just written a book on his favourite topic, Surviving PTSD, which is called Staying Alive. So would you like to say anything about what you've got here in the Fringe or about your book? Yeah, um, my uh, first edition of the book has just sold out. It only took three months, so we are um, panicking and trying to get a second edition out um, before Christmas. Um, so I'm just, I'm just enjoying the Fringe as I, as I always do. You know, um, every time I come to the fringe, I always wish I hadn't given up those um, juggling on a unicycle lessons that I had when I was a kid. <laughs> Lovely. And our third guest is Maureen Langan, a comedian based in New York City. So yes. we'd like to. And a broadcast journalist turned comedian. I am doing a one person show comedy, stand up comedy called Don't Make Me Hate You. Because I don't want to <laughs> hate people, they make me hate them. That's lamb based in the politicians easily triggered and the reality starts. And it was just sold out today, so I hope you'll come. It's over at 32 Below. Lovely, thank you so much. And uh, now, Babis, straight over to your On This Day piece. I'm the first. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Richard. Um, so I'm quite a nerdy guy, so I'm going to stick to what I know best. Uh, please come with me to the far, far, far distant past, 2012. <laughs> I want to talk about a amazing scientific uh, achievement, and that is the landing of the Curiosity rover on the planet Mars. Uh, just a little bit about our subject first. Curiosity is a specialized uh, rover that was sent uh, onto Mars to study geology, climate, to find prior evidence of life. Uh, to do so, it had a lot of complicated machinery, including a camera that it used to take selfies of itself. Gen Z, am I right? Um, yeah, it's apart from it looking like a big robotic spider, another thing that makes it stand out is sheer size. It's uh, about three meters wide, 2.8 meters uh, deep, 
meters tall, and an Imperial that's about my height this stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Altogether, it's about 900 kilograms, which makes it quite the chunky curiosity. Now, it was launched with no issue on uh, November 26, 2011, uh, whereupon it cruised for a cool nine months for its fated landing on the 6th of August 2012. Now, you might think, its sheer size, the largest rover ever made by humanity at that point, did that complicate the landing at all? Well, even to this day, NASA dubs that sequence as the seven minutes of terror. <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about. Now, landing on Mars is particularly difficult because just like the pub next to my house, it has very little atmosphere. <laughs> Enough that if you don't shield your spacecraft, it will catch on fire and explode but not enough to actually slow you down so you don't go splat on the surface. So, um, and actually, let me just set the scene here. A signal go from Mars going to Earth would take 14 minutes. Curiosity going from the atmosphere to the ground would take seven. So all of this is done blindly, completely automated. So, Curiosity enters the atmosphere, a new star appears on Mars's atmosphere, 1,600 degrees, rockets firing everywhere just to keep it in the correct trajectory. Uh, and a Amazing speed of 1,000 miles an hour, ah, rockets, whereupon a massive uh, parachute, again, one of the largest made at that point, uh, launches out and just suddenly stops it. Suddenly enough that the heat shield that had protected at that point pops off and just crashes the land in somewhere. Hopefully there is no life on Mars because we've annoyed it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that slowed us down quite nicely up to 200 miles an hour, but that's still quite a bit fast. Uh, so at this point, the parachute is a liability. So just like when you're in a toxic relationship, you have to be brave and cut it off. <laughs> at that point, Curiosity's rockets fire, not upwards, but to the left, now narrowly avoiding the much faster falling parachute. Now you might be thinking to yourselves, you've got rockets. That's it sorted, right? You're just landing. It's not rocket science. Wait. So <laughs> Mars is a very dusty planet. If you landed with, on it with uh, rockets, it would make, make a giant dust cloud. It would damage Curiosity, maybe even bury it, which wouldn't make it the most expensive robot funeral ever made by man. But there was a solution. Uh, as it was descending in crazy speeds, it cuts in half uh, the top half, the one with the rockets, uh, letting out a seven meter rope where the actual rover body was kind of held onto. As, that, as soon as that part was maybe half a second from touching the ground, a signal is sent, the rope is caught, rockets fire as much as they can, and the top half arcs and crashes away safely, presumably on the parachute. Um, and yeah, that was the landing complete. From then on, it wasn't an easy ride. The computer failed, uh, electrical shorts, the drill broke at some point. But from this side, the smart people running it, and from that side, the sheer determined grit of that little machine, everything was fixed and its two-year mission has been extended to 10 years and so on and so on and even to this day it, uh, it's still up there going around and taking selfies for its Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the Woo. Curiosity Landing. Thank you, Davis. So for my segue pieces I'm going to ask questions of the panel. So how did Solomon August Andres try to reach the North Pole in 1897? Rollerblades. Mm. <laughs> Dogs? Okay, interesting answers. It was actually <laughs> hydrogen balloon. Oh. 
course and it was. Uh, what country sponsors his expedition? Greenland. Hydroville. <laughs> I'm going over the UK. That was Sweden. <sighs> Andre was an engineer in the patents office in Stockholm. He proposed a plan for letting the wind propel a hydrogen balloon across the Arctic Sea to the Bering Strait to fetch up in Alaska, Canada or Russia and passing near or even right over the North Pole on the way. So he bought his own test balloon, the Sphere, in 1893 and made nine journeys in it from Stockholm and Gothenburg, but each time found he was carried uncontrollably out to the Baltic Sea <laughs> and even as far as Finland and was often dangerously close to the water and to the rocks. He was convinced that he could alter the course of the balloon by using drag ropes, albeit by only 10 degrees from the prevailing wind direction. But this technique has since been proved as completely ineffective. So you can see where this expedition is going, can't you? <laughs> Yet the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences was persuaded to fund a proposed 30-day hydrogen balloon trip. His steerable silk balloon would carry three people, provisions for four months, equipment and ballast weighing 3,000 kilograms. And he said they could keep going day and night because of the Arctic summer. So wh where was a good place for his balloon to be made? China. China, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, maybe. Much. Yeah. Who, who, who are good at balloons? Just because they do good watches, Switzerland, maybe? Yeah, not, not, not too far away. Germany. So Paris was actually oh, the capital Paris. of the ballooning world. Oh. Um, so it was made in the workshop there by Henri Lachambre. And the balloon was called Urnen, which means eagle. Slight problem, how would they actually cook food in a hydrogen balloon? <laughs> uh, just because the whole plan sounds terrible off the side? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So they had a primus stove designed which would hang eight metres underneath <laughs> the balloon and which could be lit from the basket. So it's, all, it's all going very well, this thing. I'm sure it's going to be fine. So, but what problems did Andre encounter which he had not planned for? What sort of things might have scuppered his mission, do you think? Uh, ah. Seagulls. Yeah, they scuppered everything. Yeah. Seagulls. Probably yeah. Arctic too, as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cold seagulls. Yeah. So there's lots of, there's high humidity there which led to ice and snow on the ah. balloon and that added to the weight. Mm. So hydrogen also leaked from the balloon's eight million stitches, something they hadn't thought through. Also, the crew were not physically fit. They were just sort of indoor types, probably pipe smokers or so, and they had no survival skills training. So, given all these factors, how far did his first expedition get from the island of Svalbard? I'm still stuck on they weren't physically fit. How physically fit do you have to be to sit in a balloon? <laughs> well, yeah, in case they got stranded. Well, you get used to the cold and stuff like that, maybe. Yeah, sort of a few thoughts. But uh, no, how far do you think they got on that first trip? from Svalbard. I'm going to guess they went pretty far but the opposite direction, <laughs> landing somewhere <laughs> in Greece. If it, if it was like me, it would be just to the nearest coaster. Yeah, it, it, it didn't leave at all. Oh. Um, strangely enough, the wind direction stayed constant from the north, mm. so if they had taken off, they would have gone in the wrong direction. Yeah. One of his crew realised there was something up here, so he quit when he saw that the leaking hydrogen meant it wasn't going to stay airborne for long enough for 30 days. So where'd he go? Where did he go? Oh, oh he's on the oh, I'm sorry. They're still on the ground. <laughs> yeah, no, he just <laughs> quit scarping. No, he never right. took off. But you told me there was freezing stuff on the balloon. Uh, well, that's that later excited. on. Yes, okay. Excited. Admittedly, I haven't got things in the right order. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way we play things in Britain. Okay, so. <laughs> so he had a second expedition, 
right, this is right, with a new crew, and that left Svalbard on 11th of July 1897. The drag ropes, which were meant to steer the balloon, they uh, dipped into the water and they automatically detached because that's how they were designed. So the crew had to dump lots of ballast, and this meant it was already unsteerable and unstable, just, and it had just taken off. And the lightened balloon flew so high, it quickly lost hydrogen through that stitching. Before we get to how successful this mission was, how did the crew decide that they would communicate with the outside world, given that this was before the days of radio and... Pigeons. It was. It was homing pigeons. Uh, thank you. Of course, that's right. <laughs> you get uh, two points. Sorry about that. Uh, only one of at least four released was picked up. It was found on a Norwegian steamer and shot. <laughs> but the attached message was retrieved and passed on, so I suppose that was the important thing. Uh, they also used messages in steel cylinders encased in cork, so they would float on the sea and hoped that some people would eventually find them. So, hmm. Anyway, so the balloon was aloft for a total of ten and a half hours before it was dragged along the ice for a further 41 hours because it was bogged down by all this extra ice. And uh, they found themselves stranded on the ice, which is where the physical training probably kicks in. Yes, yes, yes the yes. pipe smoking and all that. So they trekked south on the ice with provisions and reached as far as the island of, I don't know how you say this, Kuvituya, where they died soon after 8th of October, possibly from polar bear attacks. So, how does this relate to on this day? Well, they were found, the remains of these explorers, on this day in 1930. And uh, the bodies were recovered, so they were taken back to Stockholm. And even King Gustav V himself attended the funeral. And uh, it was a great occasion. They thought these people were fantastic. They'd done something great. And the guy that was left behind, who decided to quit the first <laughs> trip, he went on to become an early and eager advocate for anthropogenic climatic control and pointed out in 1899 that at present rates the burning of coal would eventually double the concentration of atmospheric CO2 and he first used the term greenhouse to describe the effect of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere. He was so annoyed with the weather. (laughs) (laughs) It's now over to you David for your piece. Oh sorry, no question, question. question So when the balloon first took off until their bodies were found, how how long the space was Um, that? 33 years. Amazing. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah. But they, they were frozen. They were what frozen was left home. was frozen, what yeah. wasn't eaten by the polar bears, so I guess. Frozen. <laughs> yeah. and, and there were diary entries that they'd left, so they got some clues as to where they had been and how they ended up there. So It would have been 40 years if Scotrail had been set out. <laughs> Don't talk to me about Scotrail. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough of them today already. So over to you, David, please, for your piece. Thank you. Yeah, um, hi. Hello, everyone. Um, So, um, normally as a stand-up comedian, of course, I'd have memorised my five minutes. Um, But but due to long COVID, I have brain fog and short-term memory loss. But it could be worse. I could have long COVID. (laughs) (laughs) On the 6th of August 1926, at the age of just 20, Gertrude Ederley became the first woman to swim the English Channel. Now, it wasn't her first attempt. In fact, Gertrude, or Trudy as she was nicknamed, battled the waves across the world's busiest shipping lane on four separate occasions before she finally crossed the channel at the fifth attempt. This attempt became known as Channel Number Five. (laughs) Trudy was a child protege. At 12 years of age, she broke her first world record, swimming 800 yards of the Hudson River quicker than it takes Liz Trust to do a policy U-turn. 
In the 1920s, women were banned from competitive swimming by the Men's Swimming Association until the invention of the see-through bathing suit caused <laughs> members to rise as one and get behind it. These men went on to form the Women's Football Association in England and immediately banned all women from playing football for 50 years because they refused to wear the strips designed by Victoria's Secret. <laughs> on the day of her successful crossing, it turns out that Trudy had covered 34 miles, which is 13 miles more than the channel crossing itself. This was because of the atrocious weather, horrendous currents, and having to give way for oil tankers at the traffic lights. As was traditional then, Trudy made the channel crossing from France over to England, from a place called Cape Grenet, or as the Daily Mail would say, some godforsaken part of Johnny Forner country, to the sunlit uplands of Kingstown in Kent. She did this amazing feat in just under 14 hours, which is kind of weird because that is exactly how long it takes a family in a car with two screaming kids <laughs> and a dog with diarrhoea on an August bank holiday. On her arrival beneath the white cliffs, Trudy received a traditional English welcome involving a brass band, ticker tape, and someone from immigration to put her in handcuffs. <laughs> she was then led away, processed, and immediately put on the Orient Express to Rwanda. <coughs> After her magnificent channel crossing, Trudy went on to compete in the 1924 Paris Olympics, known by the Daily Mail as the Johnny Foreigner, and why can't we and Hitler all get along. <laughs> of course, that bit's not true because the Daily Mail hadn't yet sent Hitler the cake with the file in it to help him get out of jail. Anyway, this story isn't about men with inflated egos who want to tear Europe apart and destroy their own country in the process. Um, you'll be able to buy Boris Johnson's autobiography at Christmas. So Trudy competed in three events, winning a gold in the women's 4x100 relay and a bronze in the 100 metres and 400 metres freestyle. She said that not winning three golds was a huge disappointment, which I can relate to as at the tender age of eight, I tripped over a shoelace at school sports and watched in horror as I realised that my mum had forgotten to glue the egg to the spoon. <laughs> Famous names such as Johnny Weismuller and Benjamin Spock were also in the US swimming team at the time. Weismuller would famously go on to play Tarzan and Spock, due to the harmful bacteria found in swimming pools, would spend the rest of his life fighting Klingons. When they all returned to New York, there was a huge parade with ticker tape and a brass band and Trudy capitalised on her fame by swimming in a giant tank. Although that ended when another war broke out and the Americans needed the giant tank back to fight the Germans. <laughs> in later life, Trudy ended up in a nursing home and sadly, aged 98, she went to that great Lido in the sky. But even after her death, Trudy will live on in a new movie about her life as a water baby. The movie called Young Women in the Sea has started a bidding war among Hollywood film companies with Disney coming out on top after they pitched Trudy, played by Daisy Ridley, as a lowly maid working for two ugly sisters, seven dwarfs and a baby elephant who flies onto a pirate ship to meet a man with a hook and a pathetic little wooden boy whose nose gets longer the, long, the, the more lies he tells. Rumours that her co-star as Boris Johnson have yet to be confirmed. I give you Gertrude Trudy Ederly, legend of swimming. Thank you, David. So, panel, who was the first man in space and when did he make the trip? 
Russian guy with a Russian name. Yuri Galgadin, wasn't it? Yes. Yuri Galgadin, yes. yeah. On the 12th of April 1961. But who was the second cosmonaut? No one ever remembers the second one, do they? So Are we counting dogs? No, 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 no just, <laughs> just human beings. Human beings. So, shall I, shall I tell you? It was Major German Titov. He flew on this day in 1961 and broke a number of records in the process. So, can you guess some of the records he must have broken along the way? Uh, holding your breath the longest. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. Um, no ideas. Fastest travel? Uh, possibly. It's not yep. on my list, but... Se uh, sexiest man in silver. <laughs> <laughs> More prosaic ones than this. So, what, what, you, what is the question? He was the second man in space and therefore broke a number of records yes. uh, at the time. Right. So which one, like not calling his wife for the longest time? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for example, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, um, I, know, I know they're trying to catch the food in the, in the atmosphere, whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> I'm going to guess largest spacewalk outside of the spacewalk. Oh, we didn't, no, he didn't step outside. Oh, no, no. It's, oh, um, wow. But interestingly, really? he did fall asleep at one point during the oh, trip wow. and, and noticed his arms were floating. And so he just ha hadn't anticipated this sort of thing happening. So that, that was... So he went all the way there and couldn't get out of the so, same thing? So let, let, let me say, right, he <laughs> was the first person to orbit the Earth, and he did it a total of 17 times. Oh. Uh, sorry, the first person to orbit multiple times. Okay. He was the first person to pilot a spaceship, that seems fair enough. Uh, the first person to spend more than a day in space, 25 hours, so time enough to fall asleep. <laughs> um, the first person to sleep in orbit, which I just said. So. Ah. He suffered from space sickness, so was the first person to vomit in space. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, however, on his return flight, when he had his debriefing, he alarmed the medical staff by opening and downing a beer in complete violation of the rules. Oh, that seems only fair enough, doesn't <laughs> it, having a celebratory beer? He was the first photographer from space, mm. taking the first manual photographs from orbit. So this was in 1961. Um, and the first person to film the Earth using a professional movie camera. And just a flashback to the balloon flight thing. The ill-fated balloon was called Eagle. And Titov's call sign was also Eagle. Don't little thing to round How up. How funny would it be if he passed the balloon? And he yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's taking pictures through his window because yeah. he doesn't go outside. Yeah. And they're cooking. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's over to you, Maureen, for your oh, piece. Okay. Thank you. All right, you guys. Um, so August 6th and 9th, 52, I want to talk to you about uh, a fellow named uh, Leroy Satchel Page. He was the first African-American baseball player and then the um, all mostly predominantly white Major League Baseball. And the reason I want to talk about this is I find, um, it's not that I'm such a baseball freak, but I find that baseball and um, American history seem to have a really interesting overlap. Uh, so the history of baseball is what interests me. Uh, on this date, he had a 12-inning shutout. He was 46 years old. So a shutout, do you know what that means? Nobody got on, okay, a shutout means there was not any home runs. Like mm -hmm. he, he struck out so many people and nobody can make it around the bases and go out. So it, he shut everybody out in 12 innings. A game is usually nine innings. So he went beyond that um, until somebody wins. If it's a tie, you go beyond nine innings. So in the 12th inning, his team won one to nothing. Thank you, Maureen. So um, <laughs> I hope everyone's taking notes. Sorry. Yeah, no, just, I mean, you, you get the thing. He just went long. He was 46 years old, and to this day, he holds the record of the oldest uh, player to have a shutout of, of that length. Mm. Uh, now, there were. I wanted to. I wanted to talk about him, and I will. But there were other topics on this day, like, and, and they, I found them disturbing. 
so I didn't go there. Uh, like America, the United States dropped the atom bomb on Japan, so that's light. And um, <laughs> then we had, of course, because it's America, the very first person in 1890 was electrocuted, the first prisoner in an electric chair executed in New York State. I mean, he must love Ben Franklin and Thomas Edison. And, um, and then this was another topic I saw. There was a Russian czar, 1675. Did my research. I'm so busy at the French. Do you know how hard I worked on this? So um, anyway, 1675, a Russian czar said no one, uh, unless you were noble, you know, part of, uh, you know, the, the noble group, could uh, have a foreign hairdo. You had to be nobility to have a foreign hairdo. I'm not trying to, this is, look it up. And, um, and I'm thinking, oh, well, there goes the mullet and the mohawks. Okay, so, um, so let me tell you about Satchel Paige, because it's such a fascinating story. He was born in 1906 in Mobile, Alabama, very progressive politics back then. And um, that's a joke. He, um, it's not it's still the same. Uh, he was the seventh of 12 children. And he got his nickname Satchel because he, as a young boy, worked at the railroad station and would take people's suitcases with satchels. At 13, he was caught shoplifting, so they put him in a reform, uh, juvenile reform place for uh, Negro boys, as it was called. And there, he started playing baseball, and there was a coach who saw his potential and helped him develop as one of the greatest pitchers of all time. So Satchel, as an adult, said it cost me uh, five years of freedom to, to learn how to pitch the way he did. And Joe DiMaggio, do you know Joe, you've heard of Joe DiMaggio? Mm -hmm. He was married yeah. to Marilyn Monroe, but he was a little possessive. That didn't work out, <laughs> but that's what I heard. So he said that Satchel was the fastest and best baseball um, pitcher of all time. All right, so now he's a young man. He's um, in his, like, around 20, and he's a fantastic ball player, but he can only play for the Negro Leagues. Uh, and there was a huge Negro League, a number of them. So that's how it was back then because it was a color barrier. And sometimes in the off season, this is way cool. This is what I found out researching this. There, uh, it was called barnstorming. So if it wasn't the season of the sport, uh, groups of players would get together and this one would pick this one for that team and they would go around the country. So there, I swear this is true because it was on public television. So it has to be. <laughs> so I actually did multiple resourcing to research this. There was a baseball team sponsored by something called the House of David. The House of David um, was a religious cult. They call themselves a sect, but they are a cult. And in order to belong, they had a very successful baseball team because the guys had to be celibate. The preacher said, well, I had to do something, right? Bam! So, <laughs> something. So anyway, I, I have so many dirty references and I can't say them because this is proper. So, um, so many funny things. So what they would do is the sect, the House of David, it was a Christian sect. Let's call it a cult. Let's just stay with that. And the preacher said that if you, you know, give him all your possessions, he's the Messiah and you're going to live forever. And you couldn't procreate, so we don't know how wacky everything really was because there's nobody to live on to tell us. But they had a very <laughs> six, this is all true. Look it up. They had a, and Satchel Page. so you couldn't cut your hair and they wanted you to have a beard. So you would be a perfect, perfect <laughs> ball player there. And so people would, from the Negro League sometimes go play with the House of David. And 
they were asked to sport even a fake beard. So Satchel put on a red beard to play with them. And I think that's Canada. Don't you think it's Satchel? <laughs> you people don't appreciate me. And, um, so I thought that was just very, very cool. And by the way, this House of David cult, they, in 1933, signed the very first woman. I don't know how hairy she was, but the <laughs> they, they said she didn't have to, um, you know, be hairy. But um, I just, her name was, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but it's, I think it's Vern, it's V-I-R-N-E, Vern Beatrice Mitchell, in 1933, the sign of woman. That was like a pretty big deal, because now we hate women in America, but then apparently somebody liked them. Um, all right, 1947, so Satchel's born in, 1906, in his, in his 20s, the decades of the 20s, the 30s, it was not until 1947 that the color barrier was broken by a man named Jackie Robinson, who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Is this all Czechoslovakian to you people? Are you following any of this? So he, that's not a country anymore. But um, he, um, Jackie Robinson was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers as the first African-American ball player in Major League Baseball. And when the owner of the Dodgers was asked why, he said because Robinson was a better ball player and more likable. But I think that's BS because most many people say Satchel was. And what happened though is Satchel was over 40 at that time. So of course you're going to go with the 13 year younger man. But the following year Satchel gets signed, the first pitcher in Major League Baseball, the seventh African American by the Cleveland Indians, which are not allowed to call them that anymore. Mm -hmm. So they're the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, became the oldest rookie ever signed in baseball. And uh, he still holds that title. He also became the oldest one after his retirement when he came back in 1965 uh, and pitched three shutout innings. Nobody got on, nobody made a home run. And, because um, he just would strike them out. And that, he became the oldest uh, player ever. So you have the oldest rookie, the oldest player, and you have the uh, oldest person to ever go that many innings uh, with anybody getting on base. He did say, and I love this, you gotta love this. Do I have a minute or no, am I done? Okay, I'll pass uh, a minute, that. A minute. All right, yeah. so he said that age is mind over matter, and if you don't mind, it don't matter. That's what he said, mm -hmm. yeah, unless you're a woman in America trying to get a sitcom or a talk show, then all of a sudden it matters. Um, you know, sure, my agent said, okay, it doesn't matter. Let's um, not go there. But I, the reason I really like this story and I wanted to share it with you is because when you think about discrimination, whether it be color, age, um, gender, I really think he is a lesson in how we cut each other off from each other instead of letting us share our talents with each other. And that's what he represents for me. Thank you. Well, thank you. So we come now to uh, what will be a fairly brief second half of the show where we can cover some of the history of Edinburgh. So as our venue today is Surgeon's Hall, it seems only fitting to explore some of the history of surgery in the city. The Murder Act of 1752 stipulated that only the corpses of executed murderers could be used for dissection. But when do you think panel was the first legal dissection carried out in Scotland? <coughs> Reasonable guess. Probably like 1600. Mm, I think later, but maybe I just think maybe there was some one of those diseases, like small pop, No, like they were trying to discover what. Yeah. Let me Google that. It was 1702. Now Scottish law allowed for the purposes of anatomical research the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. What do we know about the first person to be dissected then? He was probably dead. <laughs> That would be a good start, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he was probably in prison, 
or killed himself, yeah. or both. So yeah, he was called David Miles. He was executed on 27th of November 1702 for incest. Oh. His mm. sister bore his child and the village found the corpse on the midden heap. Even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was done and hanged and so was his sister. But he was authorised to be dissected. Now, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the cutting tables before, so who got the gig to carry the body? What sort of people or profession would you Ooh, think of employing? I have a good guess. Is it the people who would go around and pick up everyone's poop? The Oh, yes. It was a job. <laughs> the the picker-uppers. Yes. Uh, no. no. <laughs> I, I, I like your thinking. So. The priest. Uh, priest? Well, I think they don't do the heavy lifting there, yeah. do they, priest? No. They call, tend call to... Call men. Uh, nice call nice one. Call. It was actually chimney sweeps. Oh. So in some ways, sort of not too far off. But, um, but uh, not before they were whinging about the cost of the lead weights they needed to hold the cloth down over the corpse as they moved it through the city in a seemly manner. <laughs> Uh, bearing in mind that half the city had already turned up to watch the execution. It, I don't really know why they were bothered about that. Now, this is a bit gruesome, guys, so I hope you're okay with your stomachs in place, but um, how long did the dissection take, do you think? Because it's sort of average dissection. Three days. Three days? Three days. Yeah, because you've got to stop for lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tea time. Would you want to? <laughs> yes. A late lunch. <laughs> a bit of liver and onions, is it? Oh, yeah. no, anyway. That sounds so, no, awful. No. You, no. you just put the picnic blanket? Get um, so this, ver- this was... The very first mm. one. The first dissection very first ever. Yeah. I would imagine they would want to see what happens. They wouldn't understand the body decomposing internally, so it might take longer. So I'm mm. it, it actually took them nine days. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yikes. Different medical men from the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrated upon it each day. So they began mm. with the general discourse of the body before moving on oh. to the various organs and so on. I won't get into detail. Now, the dissecting room had an open wall at the back to keep the body cool, but even then, I think that's optimistic, even in November, to, to say nine days. There were just the hands and feet left by the end. Mm. Oof. Sorry, I did, did try to warn <laughs> you. Now, the Scottish Enlightenment in the early 19th century saw Sir James Young Simpson discover chloroform anaesthesia, mm. and Dr Joseph Lister pioneered the use of antiseptic during surgery. Mm-hmm. But who was Dr Robert Knox? Ooh. Is do- was Dr. Robert Knox the person who hired the two murderers to bring him bodies? Yes. yes. Uh, you've got oh. the right person. It's Birkin Hare, which we'll tell you about if you don't know about Birkin But technically, he, he wasn't involved. It was a third party that brought the bodies. Which is he was too we'll rich to yes. be involved. <laughs> Dr. Knox was an influential lecturer in the University of Edinburgh's anatomy department. He attended the Royal High School of Edinburgh. So a few facts about him to get a picture of what he was like. He was remembered as a bully who thrashed his contemporaries. He failed his anatomy exam first time round and had to retake it. And after graduating from the university in 1814, he was posted to Brussels and attended the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo. In 1822, he became a key force in establishing the Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the College of Surgeons and a key person in setting up the anatomical school. And he gave these rather gory lectures in dissection and his colleagues and himself dissected these bodies as part of their research. Knox was also apparently obsessed with men's head sizes, as he would be. Uh, He measured the heads of men in Glasgow and Edinburgh and discovered that Glasgow men had bigger hat sizes. And what did he interpret this to mean? I'm not going there. (laughs) (laughs) How would you interpret that, that piece of scientific evidence? Either they drank a lot or intelligence. 
given that he was based in Edinburgh, I'm going to say he thought people in Edinburgh were smarter. Yes, exactly. Yes. He thought that meant that the people in Edinburgh had uh, more refined thinking in a city oh, of learning, so the hat yeah. size reflected that yeah. fact. He got into the heavy stuff. He was also racially hostile to Highland Scots, Welsh people, and especially the Irish Celts, especially during the time of the Great Famine. He, he advocated their ethnic cleansing. So he was, uh, he was quite, a, quite a nice chap to be involved in dissections, it seems, a bit of a history and a psychology behind so um, the Judgment of Death Act of 1823 decreased the number of sentences punishable by death. This had the unfortunate circumstance of meaning there were fewer bodies for dissection, just at, just at a time when there were more students wanting to dissect bodies. So what happened when the supply of bodies could no longer keep up with demand? Mm. Animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was grave robbing. Inflation. Grave robbing oh. in Edinburgh. People called resurrectionists. Now, technically, it wasn't illegal to steal a body because it didn't belong to anyone. But disturbing a grave was. So how did rich families try to stop their relatives being exhumed for the bodies to go for dissection? What kind of techniques might you have? I have seen them here in the graveyard. Some graves have just a metal cage just above them. I yeah. think that was one. Mort safes. Yes. Yeah. So that's one technique. Yeah. Any other Concrete. ideas? Yeah, putting just basically heavy stone slabs over a grave to make it really hard yeah. to get underneath. Any other ideas? I just thought they cremated them, but I guess not her. No, cremation wasn't really a thing back then. Um, watchtowers and cemeteries. So they actually built mm -hmm. watchtowers where people would just watch really? the cemetery oh. to look out for people. Oh. Grave robbing. Now I've got a thing about Americans here. Please, everybody um, does. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> something similar was experienced, but later in the 1800s. Uh, a couple of inventors in America came up with some solutions. So one, and I think it's a kind of typically American. So Philip Clover patented the coffin torpedo <laughs> in 1878, which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when a lid of the coffin was prized open. Wow. Oh. So Hitting the balloon. A bit of, um. uh, yeah, we're going back to the balloon. And Thomas Howell patented a shell buried under the coffin and wires, which oh. if the thieves triggered it would set off a landmine. It sound like good American solutions with uh, <laughs> ordinance. You know, I didn't even realize that there was the same grave robbing and uh, dissection going on, but I'm sure yeah. why wouldn't it, right? Yeah. This, this, this show is entertaining and educational. So, so educational. Yeah. If only for you, I don't know about the audience. But, so <laughs> so uh, one advertisement for the Howell torpedo read, Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. <laughs> anyway, back in 1827 in Edinburgh, William Hare was owed £4 in rent by a fellow lodger, an army pensioner named Old Donald, when he died. One of Knox's students gave Hare a tip-off that he would be well paid if he delivered the corpse to Knox, which he did, and he received £7, 10 shillings. And what did that lead to? Having given the first body over, they thought, hmm, some money to be made. Yep. What happened then? Well, Amazon. I think they must have started Amazon <laughs> for that. Uh, well, strangely enough, one lecturer was, I think he was fined for receiving body parts in the post. But that, I didn't have that in there. So I thought they, they would um, kill them for breaking the law, and then they would have more bodies to dissect. Uh, it's kind of being like... Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, so... Cool. so 
Burke and Hare became the biggest serial killers in Edinburgh's history what? by murdering 16 people and then giving the bodies over for money. So. Yeah. They weren't disturbing the graves, so everything was perfectly legal. Exactly. And they were fresh cadavers as well, mm. which were better for dissection. And they would receive between eight and ten pound each time. It doesn't sound like a lot, it's a price for a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was a lot at the time. Not a lot is known about Burke and Hare. They were immigrants from Ulster, moved to Scotland in 1818 to work as navvies on the Union Canal. Burke was 35 years old in 1827. How did they go about killing people and not making it obvious what they were doing? Oh I um, think they were targeting like <laughs> vagrants and homeless people. Yeah. And just in the so many dark alleyways of Edinburgh. Yeah. This is so light. Yeah. So they would they would invite them into their lodgings, mm. get them drunk. Get them drunk. Yeah. yeah. Them one of them drunk. would sit on the body and the other one would suffocate them until they died. This is what Edinburgh's like. You, you think it's a nice, happy city. So it's happy. not. <laughs> it has a very dark underbelly in this city. This is why we have so many ghost tours. Yeah, you do think there'd be less pubs in Edinburgh, don't you? Well, somebody asked them now. Burke and Hare were finally caught when a couple who were staying there, uh, they, they'd uh, kind of murdered someone and the body was under the bed and they said to this couple, oh, you can't go in there. And then um, they, that obviously roused their suspicions. So when they got an opportunity, they looked in the room and saw the body and they called for the police and that's how... Burke and Hare were found. Yeah. But the thing was, there was no hard evidence to convict Burke and Hare. So how did the police get to convict them? Huh. They slept over. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to get this the right way around. Hare turned King's evidence uh -huh. and basically snitched on Burke. Uh -huh. oh, and as yeah. a result, he got let off, but Burke was hanged because of what he'd done. And, and his body was then. But I know that Hare actually escaped and people tried to kill him like a mass of people and the police yeah. helped him escape because exactly. nobody knows where he went yeah. which exactly. sorry if i'm spoiling yeah. it no, no, that's absolutely fine yeah so he was got as far as dumfries mm. he was recognized on the coach the stagecoach and so there's like a mob and the police took him away at dead of night set him off on the annan road which was close to england said on your way and that's the last that anyone saw of him so he might so be in this he could have <laughs> maybe done other stuff that we don't know about the killer's wives, because they were both married, ended up being let off as well, because uh, even though it was, it was very suspicious, because William Burke's wife, Nellie McDougall, she was brought to court to hear whether she was going to be found guilty or not of being an accomplice, mm. even though she had tried to bribe a woman on the premises to say, oh, don't say anything about the murder victim, keep quiet, I'll give you some money if you keep quiet, and yet she was still let off, even though I think that sounded a bit suspicious. Really. Mm -hmm. What happened to Dr Knox himself, the man who received the bodies? We alluded to this at the start. You'd have thought he was an accessory to murder. Yep. Probably became the mayor of Edinburgh yeah. or something. You know, Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah, there was basically people who thought this guy should be in prison, mm -hmm. but they, they decided no, he wasn't going to be charged with anything. So he was kind of basically pushed out of good society, she would say. Um, he tried to still do some dissecting um, on the side, as it were, to, to make money, because side he no longer hustle. had a job, but <laughs> on the side, on the slab, side I don't know. Hustle. And he eventually moved to London, where he died. He wrote some books, which were popular. And how are Burke and Hare commemorated in Edinburgh? Most pubs yeah, have their names. Yeah, like yeah. most mass murderers in Scotland, they're <laughs> usually commemorated by a pub. Yeah, you know. good drink. There's, there's a strip club. <laughs> Don't ask me why, but there was a strip club named after Burke and Hare on Westport, very close to where the lodging house was where the murders took place, in fact. There was a new word invented called, which was burking, 
which meant to smother a victim or to commit an anatomy murder, which sounds quite a specific <laughs> word that probably hasn't entered circulation. Um, and there was a, a poem at the time which uh, uh, I think maybe that kids said, so it's like, up, and I apologise for my Scottish accent here, but up the close and doon the stair, but and Ben with Burke and Hare, Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, knocks the boy that buys the beef. And goes away and writes two books and gets off scot-free. Yeah, <laughs> scot-free, very good. What put an end to this grave robbing? I'm going to assume they made dissection legal for bodies, just generally. Well, dissection was... Oh, for bodies well, generally, yeah, like, yes. Yeah, yes. Like yes. Just, you um, can give your body to science or something. So there was an Anatomy Act in 1832, mm. which meant that they could dissect bodies which came from public institutions where right. the bodies weren't claimed, so hospitals and workhouses, and that allowed a supply of 400 bodies in Edinburgh alone in 1828. And time has almost run out, so I have one section at the end, so I'd just like to thank the panel at this stage, so thank you for your contributions. We had Babbies, David and Maury. Thank you. Thank you. Are you going? <laughs> Someone's keen. Uh, I know you. I know you've got a show in Glasgow coming up, but no, it won't be long. I've got one final on this day so piece. Sorry. It's fine. It's fine. Don't you you don't sound almost British when you're apologising like this. My final on this day piece is to mark the death of Ben Johnson. Here, as well, it also marks the death of Anne Hathaway, William Shakespeare's wife, coincidentally in 1623. But uh, Ben Johnson died in this day in 1637, the playwright and one-time poet laureate, uh, died aged 65. He had the famous quote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm. And here are three quotes also from him to end the show with. So number one, there is no greater hell than to be a prisoner of fear. Number two, success produces confidence. Confidence relaxes industry and negligence ruins the reputation which accuracy had raised. And number three, I think he was also a wise user of social media because he said, true happiness consists not in the multitude of friends, but in the worth and choice. Thank you, that was, it just so happened. <laughs> no, actually, there was one more from him. I just realised that. Oh, no. oh, no. <laughs> so, oh, for an engine to keep back all clocks or make the sun forget his motion. Could you repeat that for a little? You sure you got time? Oh, for an engine to keep back all clocks or make the sun forget his motion. Oh, time machine. In other words, you can't stop the march of time. Thank, thank I want to thank you for having us at a smart and entertaining show. Thank you. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that later if you, you want. Can't be sincere. If you see, you can't be sincere. <laughs>